this 910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. Today, we're beginning a series we've entitled Women in Scripture. We're going to take a look at some of the women in the Bible, beginning today with Esther. The book of Esther was written sometime between 483 and 472 BC by an unknown author. The book is often thought to be a narrative about a heroic young Jewish girl who stood courageous in the face of dawning odds and saved her people. But while Esther certainly displays courage in her circumstances, we don't want to miss the big picture. No, we don't. And that big picture is that everything in the Old Testament and in the entire Bible points to Jesus. So while we can admire Esther for risking her life to save her people, she's not meant for us to make a superhero movie out of. Her story is meant to show us our need for a real Savior, a Savior that won't just save a certain people group for a specific time, but one that will save all of God's people for all time. Chris, there was some early controversy about the book of Esther. The main issue some ancient scholars had with it was not so much what the book says, but rather what it doesn't say. The name of God is never mentioned in the entire book. There's also no mention of the words prayer and faith or any reference to Jewish law. That caused some to wonder why this book was included as part of the Bible. However, the scholars who put the canon, which is the books of the Bible, together saw what we need to read in it. This brilliantly written narrative that plays out like a soap opera shows us God between almost every line. Although he isn't mentioned by name, God's sovereign hand is in all of the events that occur. In fact, when you read through it, you see at times that the author has to go out of his way not to mention God. We see verses that talk about Mordecai and sack and cloth, which was a Jewish form of mourning, and Esther fasting, which would have always been accompanied by prayer. It's like he leaves God's name out intentionally, and he did. He's showing us that even when it seems God is nowhere to be found, he's always near, working for the good of his people. Rose, let's start by setting up the historical context before we delve into Esther's story. Around 607 BC, under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar II, the Babylonian Empire conquered the Jews in the southern kingdom of Judah, which consisted of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Many of the Jews were taken into captivity and exiled to Babylon. This story is told in 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25. This time period would have been during the time of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah. God used Babylon as his agent to punish Israel for their sins of idolatry and rebellion against them. The Israelites were warned about this happening for centuries through the prophets, before God even brought it to fruition. But just as God used the prophets to warn the Israelites of coming judgment, he also used them to give them hope of eventual restoration. Jeremiah the prophet told the Jewish people they would be returned to the promised land after a 70-year period of exile and punishment. For the nation of Judah, that prophecy was fulfilled in 537 B.C., when King Cyrus of Persia overthrew the Babylonian Empire and took control of the captives. Cyrus allowed the Jewish people to return to the Promised Land and begin rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and the temple. But not everyone chose to return. For many, life in the Babylonian kingdom had become familiar and comfortable, and they remained even when Persia took control and permitted them to leave. Susa, formerly a Babylonian city, became the territory of Persia, and that's where the story of Esther takes place during the reign of King Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus, 
who led a very large Persian empire from 486 to 465 BC. In the story of Esther, we'll see God working through ordinary circumstances to accomplish the extraordinary. We will. So let's dig into Esther's story. In the third year of Xerxes' reign, he decides to spend 180 days showing off his wealth to his princes, noblemen, and others. At the end of the 180 days, he throws a week-long banquet. The wine was flowing abundantly. This feast was only for men and prostitutes. Toward the end of the week, Xerxes orders his queen, whose name is Vashti, to appear before him at the banquet wearing her royal crown. Vashti refuses, and with good reason. Not only would it have been demeaning for her to appear there, but she also knew that all the men, including her husband, would have been really drunk. Plus, there are some Jewish scholars who say that when Xerxes told her to appear wearing her crown, that's all he expected her to be wearing. Yeah, I think I would have passed on that too. Yeah, me too. But King Xerxes can't afford to overlook Vashti's public defiance of refusing to show herself at his banquet. He turns to his political advisors and his wise men for advice. They're, though, worried more about themselves than Xerxes. They're worried that their wives are going to follow Vashti's example and start disobeying them. So to deter that from happening, they tell Xerxes to write a law stripping Vashti of her crown and forbidding her from ever appearing in the king's presence. Fast forward to four years later. King Xerxes returns from a disastrous campaign against Greece and decides to find a new queen. His men go out into the city and take 400 women with the intention of putting together a harem of young, beautiful virgins for the king. After receiving a year of beauty treatments, each of the girls sleeps with the king for one night. He would then choose two or three girls to be his wives and one to be his new queen. None of the girls volunteered for this. The Persian Empire saw all of its citizens' purpose as serving the empire. It probably seems sexist that they took all these young women to serve the king's pleasure, but you know what? They would have just as quickly taken the young men to serve in the king's army. Everything a person possessed, even their very being, was considered owned by the empire and could be claimed by the king anytime he wished. Right. These women were the king's property. If he slept with them and didn't like them, they would spend the rest of their life in comfort but wasting away in the harem. They could never leave and marry somebody else. Even if he liked them and called them to his bedroom once in a while, there were 400 new women, not to mention the hundreds he probably already had. So do the math. (laughs) Esther was an orphan who was being raised by her cousin Mordecai, who was more like a father to her. Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a second or third generation living in exile in Susa. His exiled life in Susa was all he had ever known, which is probably why he stayed instead of returning to Jerusalem. Mordecai was related to King Saul, a fact that becomes significant in this book. The Bible says that Esther was lovely and beautiful. The Bible generally tends to understate things, so when it says that Esther was lovely and beautiful, we know that she must have been gorgeous. And just as God made Nebuchadnezzar and Darius find favor with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and elevate them, so he does with Esther. Soon after being taken, Esther endears herself to Haggai, the king's eunuch in charge of his harem. Just like the women who were taken to be part of the harem, eunuchs weren't given a choice about their service either. But out of 400 women, Esther is the one who earns Haggai's favor. Because of this favor... Haggai gave Esther special beauty preparations beyond her allowance. She starts her preparations earlier than the other women, and he also gives her seven choice maidservants to look after her beauty needs. 
Chris, I'm not sure why anyone needs seven maids to look after your beauty regimen, especially if you're already starting out gorgeous, but so it was. The 12 months of beauty treatments consisted of six months bathing in oil of myrrh and six months in spices and ointments. It's been suggested that the women may have literally spent time in these elements, with ointments being applied by means of a chemical bath or fumigation. That sounds nasty. (laughs) And the food they were given wasn't just any food. It was meant to enhance their beauty, perhaps meant to fatten up some of the scrawny ones, since being thin was not a sign of beauty in those days. During all this time, Esther hid her nationality, accepted her circumstances, and complied without complaint. Esther has no qualms about going through the beauty treatments, eating what she's told to, and being used as the king's plaything. It seems like Esther has a weak character and is compromising her faith, but that's not completely true as we see later. However, at this stage, she does seem to be the perfect anti-Vashti. She does. And before her night with the king, she shows a lot of wisdom. Before spending the night with the king, each girl was allowed to choose whatever jewels they wanted from the treasury to wear. Whatever they chose was theirs to keep forever. Instead of being selfish and decking herself out in jewels so she could have a lot afterwards, she asked Haggai to suggest what she should wear. Who else would have better known King Xerxes' taste than one of his officers, especially the one in charge of all his women? Esther has her night with Xerxes and he falls for her. Esther 2 verses 17 to 18 says, And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Esther was beautiful, but certainly so were some of the other 400 women. Xerxes obviously saw something in her that drew him to her, a lot like how Potiphar and Pharaoh were drawn to Joseph or King Darius was drawn to Daniel. Rose, is it the godliness inside of them that drew the people to them? Or is it God causing people to be drawn to them, you think? The answer is yes. (laughs) Both. (laughs) Yeah. Yes and yes. All of these are perfect examples of God's sovereignty working in conjunction with human circumstances and actions on earth. Scripture says Xerxes loved Esther above all women, so the royal crown was set on her head. Esther's queenship was made official by putting the crown on her head. The very thing Vashti refused to do at the banquet. A feast was given in her honor. The king granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave generous gifts to the people. The result of Esther's coronation was happiness and blessing all around. When the king was happy, everyone was happy. Throughout all of this, Esther's cousin Mordecai was keeping a watchful eye on Esther, advising her along the way. He visited the court of the harem daily to check on her. Mordecai's great interest in Esther shows his love and concern for her in what could potentially be a dangerous place. Again, God's hand is all over this. By Mordecai continually checking up on Esther, he discovers a plot against the king in which a couple of his officers are planning on killing him. Mordecai tells Esther about it and she in turn reports it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. The conspirators were hanged and Mordecai's name was inscribed in the royal annals. Usually, anyone who does a service like this for the king would be immediately rewarded, but for some reason, nothing is done for Mordecai. We will see that the for some reason is that God will use this reward for Mordecai at a later time. Need to see God working in this? In order for Esther to be queen and for the Jews to be saved from annihilation, 
Mordecai and his family had to not go back to Judah, but stay in Persia. King Xerxes had to have a banquet. He had to have gotten drunk. He had to call Vashti to the banquet. She had to refuse. He had to get angry. His advisors had to tell him to get rid of her. He had to wait four years before acting on it. They had to decide to have a forced beauty contest. Esther's parents had to have died. Mordecai had to have taken her in. Esther had to be beautiful. She had to be compliant and do what Mordecai told her. Haggai had to have taken notice of her. She had to take Haggai's advice. King Xerxes had to favor her above all the others. He had to make her queen. Mordecai had to check on her every day by sitting by the gate. The men plotting to kill the king had to talk in front of him. Mordecai had to decide to tell Esther. She had to report it. It had to be investigated and found true. It had to be recorded in the king's book of annals. The king had to do nothing at the time. It was found to be true. And on and on and on, as we'll see. The point is that if you look at all these things individually, they're pretty much ordinary happenings. I'm sure no one saw any significance in any one of them. However, remove one of them and the whole plan falls apart. God works in the ordinary. We just often never see it at the time things are happening. Rose, this is a great exercise for us to do in our own life and a good place to end this episode. In our next episode, we'll continue with the story of Esther. We'll meet Haman, a man whose ancestors had a run-in with King Saul, and as a result, he hates the Jews. We'll see how his hatred affects the lives of Esther, Mordecai, and even King Xerxes. This story is filled with intrigue and death plots and everything else, so stay tuned. If you like what you just heard, please review us on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. And feel free to leave questions, comments, and feedback. We love to hear from you. Have a blessed day.